God of Jesus Christ, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in 1988, a man purchased a farm somewhere outside of Edmore, Michigan, which is a place none of us have heard of. And when he bought the farm, it came with all the things you get when you buy a house. I haven't bought one, I don't know, but I'm told these things. I came with a stove to cook food in and a fridge to keep food cold and a shower to, you know, to have a shower and all the things that houses come with, including a 22-pound rock to function as a sort of doorstop. And so for 30 years, this man lived in this house. He used the oven to cook food, the fridge to keep food cold, the shower to shower, and the 22-pound rock to prop open the doors when his hands were full with groceries. That is until one day in 2018 when the farmer decided that there was something unusual about this 22-pound rock doorstop. And he brought it to Central Michigan University. And there, his suspicions were proven true as they discovered that the 22-pound rock that had acted as a doorstop for the last 30 years was, in fact, a $100,000 meteorite. There are stories just like this, and believe me, I went down a rabbit trail this week. There are stories just like this, hundreds of them all over the world, of people treating or mistreating priceless treasures in ordinary, subordinary ways. We hear these stories, and if you're like me, you're a bit judgmental. Uh, we judge, right? Well, come on. Obviously, it's a meteorite. Obviously, it's not just a rock. Obviously, that painting is not something you put over your stove and hot oil splashes onto it. Like, obviously. But before we nod our head too readily in agreement, we might first want to hear the big idea that Paul's going to unpack for us this morning in our text. See, our text this morning, and Paul is saying that we, you, you and me, we have something infinitely more valuable than a meteorite. And yet we treat it like it's common, like it's nothing. Actually, worse than that. We drag it through the mud, we spit on it, we give it to our kids to chew on, we use it to prop open doors. That thing to which I refer, what Paul's talking about, the thing we need to rescue from the mud and the saliva of teething two-year-olds that thing is worth incomparably more than all other things. This thing is the church of Jesus Christ. I once worked with a pastor who, after spending many, many years in ministry, would say this all the time. I've never met someone who has too high a view of the church. So coming out of this text this morning, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 23, my singular goal is very, very simple. It's so simple. It's this. That we would together this morning leave with a sense of just how precious, how valuable, and how glorious the church of Jesus is to our Father in heaven. It's the singular goal this morning. 
That's the whole point of our text. To do that, if you're taking notes, and this is helpful, if you're not, don't worry about that, we're going to work through three headings. First, God's temple. The church is God's temple. Second, so build carefully. The church is God's temple, so build carefully. And then thirdly and finally, and we'll see when we behold God's temple for all that it is, that it's indeed all that we need. So look at your Bibles with me. As an aside, if you don't have a Bible right now, we have a Bible for you. And so Daniel's at the back right there. If you want to put up your hand, you need a Bible, Daniel will give you a Bible right now. It's our gift to you. Awesome, Daniel. Thank you so much. Furthermore, if you don't have one of our First Corinthian booklets, our booklets that have the text in it and some room for some notes, we can give one to you as well. It's our gift to you. Uh, so put up your hand. Keep that hand up if you need a Bible or a booklet uh, for notes. I will give that to you. If you already have a booklet and you left it at home, you don't get a second one. I'm sorry. Thanks, Daniel. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17 with me. And let's read this together. There Paul writes, and we read as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let's just stop there. We have this morning, if you've been following with us, a change of metaphors. And so last week, Paul used two different metaphors. The church, he said, is like a child needing to grow. And I used that very inappropriate illustration, right? And if you don't know what I said, you can listen to last week's sermon. And he also said the church is like a field that we labor in, right? It's like a child. We need to grow, but the church is also like a field that we labor in, we, we, we work in. This morning, as if it's not enough, Paul adds a, a third metaphor. Like a child, like a field, and now Paul says, you church, you are God's building. You're God's building. But not just any old building. You're God's temple, Paul says. And it's hard because we're not naturally as a people steeped in the culture of the Bible or in the Jewish culture of Paul's day, it's hard to over, overstate just how significant Paul's statement is. And to help us understand, I want to just go, if, you, if we can, all the way back to, to Genesis. See, the Bible asks big questions. Not like silly questions like your kids ask sometimes, like, 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 why are you doing that? And, and why are you doing that? And why are you doing that? No, the Bible is concerned with big, big, big questions. And one of those big, big, big questions that the Bible is concerned with answering is, is why isn't God with his people? Why doesn't God dwell amongst humanity? Why is he, in fact, separate from us? So I want to show you this. Go to Genesis with me. In the beginning, in Genesis... To the question, will God dwell among his people? The answer is a resounding yes. Yes, yes, yes. What we find in the first few pages of our Bible is a garden temple in Eden. And so Eden, you might not know this, was actually a bigger place. And the garden where Adam and Eve actually dwelled was a garden temple. They're in, as it were, uh, the holy of holies with God. He's walking amongst them. Adam actually functions a bit in a priestly role in that garden temple. The Bible continues, man sins against God and man is banished from the garden temple. 
And it will not be many years until God once again dwells among his people, Israel. And this time he dwells amongst his people in this sort of portable temple, this sort of temple to go, as it were. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 23, so moving this way in your Bibles, in verse 14, the same word is used to describe God's presence in the midst of your camp as described him walking among Adam and Eve in the temple garden. God once more dwells among men. And it's good. Sometimes. Sometimes it's just dangerous. And when Solomon, they move, now Israel moves from this portable temple to go to Solomon's glorious temple. Listen to the, uh, the dedication ceremony and how it goes, okay? In 1 Kings 8. There we read, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Like they're, they're, they're crushed by the weight of his glory. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Again, God palpably like dwells among his people. It's only three chapters later. The header in your Bible might read, Solomon turns from the Lord. And we begin sort of this downward descent of Israel that culminates in the destruction of Solomon's temple. This glorious temple is destroyed. God's people sent into exile away from the temple. Eventually, they're allowed to return to rebuild the temple. But, but you, you know how it is, right? When you build something the second time, it's not as good as the first. Don't have the same materials. And so in Ezra 4, you can actually read about this. While the young people are celebrating this new temple, look, we have a temple again. God once more dwells with his people. The old people are like, you should have seen the last one. That's way better than this one. Notice in Ezra 4, there is no cloud. There is no glory filling the temple. So, while we were sure in the garden temple that God dwelt with man, and we were sure in the wilderness that God in the tabernacle was in the midst of Israel's camp. And surely God dwelt among us in Solomon's glorious temple. Now, like we're not so sure. It's a bit confusing. In fact, as we come to the New Testament, to Jesus, the question of will God dwell among his people is a very live one. And understandably, Jesus' Jewish audience, of which he is one, they're expecting a building, some sort of structure to be made. In fact, they're so enamored with a physical temple that they actually miss God in Jesus right in front of them. And so we read in Matthew 12, Jesus says to them plainly, I tell you, don't you see? Don't you see? Something greater than the temple is here. And he's talking about himself. Emmanuel, right? Christmas is coming up. God with us. Now, we keep on going in the story. After Jesus' death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, he leads. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. But he doesn't leave us alone. He gives us his Holy Spirit. Which brings us, after thousands of years of history, you did really well sitting through that, after thousands of years of history, to what Paul says to the Corinthians in this letter. He says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple 
and that God's Spirit dwells in you. And here's what this means. In this age, so after Christ's death and resurrection and before Christ's return, this now but not yet, this sort of middle time, as it were, in this age, God's presence amongst humanity is by his spirit through his church. Church corporate. All of us. Meaning, and and this should blow our minds just a little bit, the church is the very presence of God in this world, in this age. In this now, but not yet. Yes, God's Spirit dwells in us individually. And we're Western people, we want to think about the individual. Yes, God's Spirit dwells in us individually. Paul will get to that in a few chapters. But he also dwells in us corporately, as one body. The church throughout time is one body, one field, being built into a glorious temple wherein the Spirit of God resides, where God dwells with man. And I just want you to consider that for a moment. I just want you to not gloss over what I just said, but just consider, really consider that the church, not a building, but every believer loved and chosen by God, stands at this point in time as God's presence in our world. See, we can imagine the the frustration of Paul It's very likely that Paul doesn't just have an eye to his Jewish listeners in this moment. He would understand the whole temple imagery. He also has an eye towards his Greek audience as well. And Paul's Greek audience would know, listen, when you go to the temple of Aphrodite or Artemis, the expectation is that you actually encounter these deities there. The expectation is that they're actually there, right? That's what temples are for, to meet with God. This place of of meeting heaven and earth. And what has Paul so flabbergasted is that certain leaders, and our text is getting closer to the heart of the division going on in Corinth, certain leaders are casually and carelessly chopping up the church of Christ as if it were nothing. As if the church was just another arena for their political power plays and pursuing their own self-interests. Paul says... And I know we like meek and mild, Paul. But maybe even yells. Do you not know? Do you not know? Like this is found, do you not know? Oh, wise ones. Oh, knowledgeable ones. That the thing that you are playing with, as if it's a doorstop, is God's temple. Do you not know? And what if Paul was to turn now to us? Do do you not know, Christ City? Realistically, the way that both leaders and church members act, an honest reply would go like this. No, Paul. We don't. We don't. To this day, Leaders use the church as a doorstop, a means by which the door is open to increase their following, their brand, sell their books, their ego, and bump their bank account. 
Likewise, its members treat the church not like a temple, but like a brothel. A place that, when desired, you can scratch your intellectual, philosophical, community itch with no regard for the people that comprise it. No regard for what you say about it after you leave its doors. But the church is not a doorstop. She's not a brothel. She's holy. Like the garden temple in Eden, she's holy. Like the portable tabernacle in the wilderness, she's holy. Like the most holy place in Solomon's glorious temple, she's holy. In this age, the church is the very presence of God in this world. She's holy. And you know, the worst part about preaching on a text like this is, is my heart's exposed. And I can think this week of all the times when I've spoken of and thought of and treated the church as if she was something other than the very presence of God in this world, and it grieved me. And my sense is I'm not alone. The church is God's temple. She's holy. She's holy. So how should we build her? This is point number two. If this is who the church, if this is who she is, right? How should we build her? Point two is build carefully. Build carefully. Look at verses 10 to 15 with me. Let's read this together. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Now, that's not Paul bragging. He's just saying, listen, I'm building carefully. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than, that which, other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Last week we saw really clearly, if the church is to grow, it is because God said, grow. Grow. And now as Paul switches metaphors, the same thing is true. If God's building is to be built up, it's because God laid the foundation in his son Jesus Christ. Paul said this really clearly. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In the building process then, our foundation, our foundation is not my work or your work, or even Paul's work or Apollos' work. It's Jesus. Paul will say in his letter to the Ephesians that the, the apostles and the, the New Testament prophets are just building on this work laid by Christ, this foundation laid by Christ. Our job then, as it was the task of the Corinthian leaders, is to build on this foundation as we preach and teach Christ. And last week, the warning was very clear. Don't build something else. Don't preach and teach yourself. Don't labor for your own glory. We grow not by deserting the gospel, we said, but by going deeper into who Christ is. By going deeper into who Christ is seen in, in, in the cross, in the crucifixion. 
The same is true not just for our growth, but as we seek to build one another up. The church is to offer one another and this world nothing other than and no one else than, than Jesus. That's it. That's it. And in a way that makes sense only when we see the church as holy, Paul simultaneously both warns and instructs the Corinthians when he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. How should we build? Carefully. Carefully. See, there are two ways, actually three ways, Paul sees people building in this text. The, the first is this. People who build and who labor using imperishable material, right? Gold, silver, precious stones. People who are building on the foundation of Christ, not for their glory, not for their aim, not teaching something else, but teaching Christ, Christ crucified. Paul says we can also labor using perishable materials, wood and hay and straw. We can labor with imperishable or perishable materials. Either way, we are to build in view of what Paul calls the day. The day. Now, some of you have had the day in your life. Maybe it was your, your wedding day or the day like a child was coming or like you were getting a job. But I promise you, all those the days pale in comparison to this the day. The day that Paul's talking about here, we've actually already encountered in 1 Corinthians. And I know you remember this, but I'll read it again for you because you perfectly remember all of it. 1 Corinthians 1.8, where we read this, and Daniel led us in this. He said, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day for Paul really simply refers to the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus. The return of Christ. And the language of fire in our text today should not make us think of the fire of hell, for example. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Nor should we think, as they have previously, about purgatory, right? This is some sort of time where you prove yourself before you go on to heaven. All that Paul is talking about this morning is on the day when Christ returns, he will judge everyone. Everyone. If you're a Christian, he will judge you. If you're not a Christian, he will judge you. We'll, we'll all be judged. All our work will be assessed. And the language of fire is the language of, of purifying or refining. And what we've done will finally be exposed, which is a frightening thought. It will be seen. No hiding. No more covering up. It will be seen. And there will be questions asked. First, if you're built on Christ, did I build indeed on him? Did I see the church as the holy dwelling place of God's spirit? Was I careful? Did I serve in such a way that highlighted Jesus and not me? Did I seek to build on Christ crucified and Christ crucified alone? This is what it means to build with gold and silver and precious stone on that day, if you built in that way, you should expect rewards. Or, did I seek to do my own thing? Did, did I want a bit more credit than the guy who built, like, apartment 264 on the 50th floor? You know, did I, in fact, want to build my own wing, right? The Jake Lefebvre wing, right? It's kind of nice, has a monument to myself. 
I'm slam dunking a basketball, right? It's a glorious, glorious place. Did I want to build a wing to myself in this temple for my own name, for my own glory? On that day, my monument to myself and, and to your stuff will be exposed as wood and hay and straw and will be destroyed. Now listen, though I will be in God's kingdom, did you see what Paul said? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Paul's not talking about saved or not saved here. What he is saying is on that day, though I will be in God's kingdom, I will look back on my life's labor and realize it was all for nothing. It was meaningless because it was for me. It had my name on it. We all have a longing to build things that last, right? Literally listen to any interview with a pro athlete or a business mogul, and what will they say? I'm here to further my legacy. They'll literally use the words, I'm here to build something that lasts. Right? That, that's their language, is it not? And I hate to be the bearer of bad news on this. Maybe I a little bit enjoy it. But unless you build Christ City on the foundation that is Jesus Christ crucified, you are killing yourself to pile kindling on a bonfire. That's the language of this passage. Unless your work and your parenting and your relationships, your, your everything stands on Christ crucified, it will not last. So I just want to ask very, very simply, how are you building today? How are you building? How are you building at home? Is your concern largely with getting your kids into the best school so they can get the best jobs, play all the sports, right, in case that scholarship is out there somewhere, right? So they can be the best they can be in this life. Is, does that preoccupy your mind? My encouragement to you today is very simple. Brother and sister, parent in view of the day. When preaching and teaching your kids the gospel, when discipling your kids in Christ will be exposed as gold to them. How are you building at home today? How are you building at work? There are a lot of you sitting here this morning who are overworked. And if you just sat up, he's talking about me. That's how many of you are overworked. And this might just be the season that you're in. And that could be true. And I can accept that. But let me ask this. Might it be because potentially you're laboring for yourself? Laboring for your comfort. Laboring for your standard of living, which you can't quite let go of. Brothers and sisters, work. And, and work hard. But work hard in view of the day. Give yourself to work that will last for eternity. Work hard to find how your work connects to God's redemptive purposes in this world. I'm not just talking about full-time ministry. Have a bigger view of work than that. Believe me. But work hard to see how your work connects to God's redemptive purposes in this world. Work hard for, for the day. It will be exposed as silver. Third, how are you building your relationships? 
We treat people like commodities. You do it, I do it, we all do it. We use people to get something or to meet some need we have, and then when we uh, are done, we discard them. We are relational vampires. That's what we are. We all want to be mentored, but no one wants to mentor. The work Paul is talking about is people work. Paul is pouring himself out. Think about this. For this stubborn, wicked, like frustrating people, he's killing himself for these people. People the world would tell us, leave them behind. They are more out than they are in. Just leave them behind. Use some self-care. Calm down, Paul. The good news this morning is that when you labor with the gospel in these situations, with these people, it will be revealed in that day as having been labored with precious stones. So how are you building today? Make sure you're building carefully, that it's work that'll last. And in case the careful has not been driven home, I said that there was a third kind of builder this morning. See, there are those who labor with gold and silver and precious stones, then they build on the foundation of the gospel. Those will be rewarded on the day. And there are those who labor with wood and hay and straw as they seek to glorify themselves and in doing so create all sorts of division, disunity in the church. Those who, while welcomed into God's kingdom, while saved, will see that they contributed nothing to God's temple. But there's also a third group. This group goes beyond building with inappropriate materials. While the second group might genuinely believe that they're doing something beneficial for God's kingdom, this third group of builders are actually unbuilders. You know, a few years ago, there was a house, some of you might know this, beside the church building in South Vancouver. And we wanted to tear that house down. And so instead of having, you know, like a wrecking ball come through and just knock the house down, we hired a company called Unbuilders. And what they do is that they take it apart, you know, piece by piece. However houses are made, wood by wood, or whatever, whatever in the house. I'm not a builder. I teach the Bible. <laughs> They're called Unbuilders. That's what they do. They, 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 and they give that wood to somebody else or sell it to somebody else. They're Unbuilders. That's the idea Paul has in mind here. In verse 17, did, did you hear that? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you're that temple. Literally, in, in the original language, the destroy part is what's front-loaded here. So it's, it reads like this. Destroy God's temple. Destroy him, God will. And my impulse right now is to nuance that for you, make it like much more palatable. Destroy God's temple, destroy him, God will. Why? For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. How should you build? Carefully. If you're all sorts of anxious right now, let me invite you to keep on reading. Because our passage ends with a sort of examination for builders. Look at verse 18. We'll go up on the screen, but have your Bibles open as well. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, 
Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile so that no one boasts in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Paul ends with a warning that should be obvious by now. If God's church is holy and our building is to be judged on the day, then make sure you're not self-deceived. And this is one of those moments in Scripture where the command is easier said than done, isn't it? Just don't be self-deceived. See, to be human is to have a tremendous capacity for self-deception. There is this uh, depressing or hilarious survey done. You'll decide in a bit. It was done of American high school seniors. And American high school seniors where 70%, 70% thought they were above average in leadership ability, and 2% thought they were below average. Now, again, I'm just a Bible teacher, but I can do that math. That's impossible. 70% thought they were above average in leadership ability, only 2% thought they were below average. The same survey found that 60% thought they were in the top 10% in their ability to get along with others, and 25% thought that they were in the top 1% in their ability to get along with others. Now, some of you are like, well, they're Americans. Makes sense. Sorry, Lydia. Sorry, Stefan. Bless you guys. Love you guys. Hear what I say now. This is an all-of-us problem, not just an American teenager problem. Humanity has a tremendous capacity for self-deception. See, I have no doubt that there will be many on the day, think about this, who will be genuinely surprised to see their work go up in smoke. Right? That's the definition of self-deception. They're deceived. Right? They think what they're doing is good and right and correct. So how does this happen? I think this can happen any number of ways. But I think it primarily happens because it's simply easier not to see the truth. I'm going to put a quote on the screen from philosopher Mike Martin. And I don't think he's a Christian, but he said this. He says, evading self-acknowledgement of our faults enables us, helpfully, to avoid painful moral emotions, guilt and remorse for harming others, shame for betraying our own ideals, self-contempt for not meeting even our own minimal commitments. We also bypass the sometimes onerous task of abiding by our values and manage to sin freely and pleasurably. We avoid the need to make amends and restitution for the harm we do. In short, it's just easier to be self-deceived. It's just easier. And if Martin, other philosophers, the Bible is right, we really deceive ourselves in order not to be crushed by the truth, in order to avoid being crushed by the truth. It happens all the time, doesn't it? It happens when the parent chooses to pretend they don't notice the signs of their son's drug use. It happens when the husband willfully chooses to ignore the signs of his wife's affair. It happens when the teenager willingly 
willingly chooses to ignore the connection between their ongoing porn addiction and the global sex trade. We deceive ourselves intentionally all the time. And now come to Corinth with me. It happens when the leader who has built a following on their own wisdom, their own cleverness and charisma, is afraid to turn back and afraid to lose everything, afraid to see their work for what it truly is. And the question Paul's asking is, but would he? Or would she? We're right in thinking our buildings made of wood and hay and straw are futile as evidenced by the quotes from Job and Psalms that Paul cites, right? God loves to topple these man-made, man-glorifying structures. But God is not a kindergarten bully toppling over other kids' Duplo towers for the sheer fun of it. No. He's a loving friend, a caring father, who takes the pipe and the needle and the bottle and the cell phone from our hands and says, I have given you, church, something so much better. So much better. And hear it again, Christ City. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. So, so why are the Corinthians dividing? And why are their leaders squabbling? It's because they've forgotten who they are. What they have. Like you and me trying to, trying to carve out a piece of Vancouver for ourselves. They're trying to carve out a piece of Corinth for themselves. And Paul, not using hyperbole, not exaggerating. He does this elsewhere. He's not doing that here. Paul, not using hyperbole, is essentially saying, you are spiritual billionaires squabbling over pennies. Less than pennies. You are sons and daughters acting like slaves. That's what Paul's saying. You're eager to enslave yourself under the patronage of someone else. You're eager to enslave yourself to the Corinthian meritocracy, to, to climb the ladder, to play the game, all the while forgetting that you are sons and daughters who have everything in Christ. Church, you don't need to play the game anymore. You don't need to play the game anymore. You can hop off the rat wheel. You don't need to play the game anymore. Because in Christ, you have everything. If only you would turn to him. And do you believe that this morning? Do you believe, actually, that if you were to turn to Christ, while it would be nice, you'd actually still lack something, still be without something? Church, in Christ, you have everything. Everything. And so listen, our hope as a team to get you to come on a Sunday, our hope to get you to gather in community groups midweek, it's not because we need numbers to make ourselves feel good. It's not because I need butts in the pew uh, to make myself feel good about who I am as a preacher. It's because I truly believe that in the church of Christ, 
you have every single blessing you could ever need. And I want you to have that. And I want you to experience it. And I want you to know it. I imagine the farmer at one point or another, you know, the one who bought the farm? Imagine that he had money trouble at one point. I imagine there was a time when the crops didn't pan out or a tractor died. I imagine that there was a time when he was in a tight spot financially. And I can imagine him driving to the bank and, and, and haggling for a loan there or calling up his buddy from 10 years ago, remember you owe me money. And all the while, propping open his door is this $100,000 meteorite. In God's wisdom, he has chosen to give an inheritance far more valuable to all those who are found in his son, to his church. And so build carefully. And church, don't be self-deceived any longer. There is nothing the world has to offer that you don't already have in Christ. And you believe that? Let's pray. So, Father, we come this morning to receive. To receive as your people. And indeed, we already have. We've received through your word, through the reminder of your forgiveness of sins and our confession and assurance. As we lamented to you, and you heard our lament, everything is ours. So, Father, I pray you would lift our gaze. You lift our gaze from desiring and squabbling over earthly things and earthly matters and that we would be content, indeed more than content, overjoyed with the inheritance we have in you. Would you come by your spirit? Would this be a place where you dwell? Would you change us, renew us, remake us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more, of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca.